Welcome to everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jillian Perkins. I'm the Director of Communications at Arnrich Messina, a Portland-based investment advisory firm bringing our unique and disciplined process and philosophy to nonprofit endowments and foundations, high net worth individuals and families, and corporate clients. Welcome to part three of our impact investing series in which we're exploring impact investing themes. Arnrich Messina has been focusing research efforts in this area for more than a decade now, and we're really excited to be offering our clients a complete multi-asset class portfolio with an impact focus and one that we think has great outperformance potential. So in our last two podcasts in the series, which I would encourage everyone to listen to, we first discussed our history and the background of our research, and then what impact investing is and why investors really should be excited about this. So today, we're going to go to the next level and diving into the specific impact investment themes that we have identified as potential opportunities for investors. So here to talk about it with me are Brian Shipley, our co-CIO, and research analyst, Mitch Vogt. Thanks for having us, Jillian. Thanks for being here. So both of these uh, gentlemen have been intimately involved with our impact research and portfolio development process, and uh, we're excited that they are here to bring their expertise and insight to the subject. So it's my pleasure to introduce Brian and Mitch. Um, And I just wanted to quickly go back, before we dive into our impact investment themes, can you guys provide just a short recap for people on what impact investing is, how it relates to ESG, and how we chose these themes that we're going to talk about today? Yeah, definitely. So uh, ESG is is really um, has gained a lot of traction and is somewhat of an industry buzzword, but um, it's not exactly how we're approaching impact investing. So I really see a, a spectrum of different opportunities in, in this space. There's um, the far left, which is ESG, SRI investing, which isn't focused directly on making a positive impact, but mostly on scoring companies and avoiding those making the largest uh, negative difference. And then if you go all the way over to the far right, there's mission-based investing, which is uh, making a positive difference in the world, but tends to be concessionary on investment performance. And uh, we believe being concessionary on mm-hmm. returns is, is unwise for clients because mm-hmm. uh, that leaves less capital to achieve what, what's at the core of of your mission and and your beliefs. So um, in the middle and at the sweet spot is thematic investing. And that's that's the the area we we believe our portfolios are aligning with. And and this is where we're we're making a positive difference by investing in what the world needs without being concessionary on returns. We're uh, focusing on themes that are ripe with innovation, but lack the capital needed to really fuel those ideas that are going to make that positive difference in the world. Um, these are areas with uh, the winds at their back, poised to capture um, on trends that, that will make the world a better place and benefit the companies operating in the space. That's great. Um, so to um, follow up on that, we've identified four of these main impact themes that Mitch is talking about. Food and agriculture being one, water, resource efficiency, and life sciences, healthcare. Uh, so let's just jump right in and start talking about, I want to start by talking about food and agriculture and water. Although we look at those as separate themes, they're pretty closely tied together. So uh, tell me about why these are significant themes and what opportunities you're seeing in these areas. Definitely, yeah. So just just to lay out the, uh, the case for investing in water, um, 2.5% of, of the water in, in the world is fresh water, and less, less than 1% of that 2.5% is, 
is available for uh, for consumption. Much of that is is in glaciers and, and snowfields and the like. Um, wow. Currently, uh, 50% of the water in the developing world, so not U.S., but think more third world type countries, uh, is lost due to uh, insufficient or outdated infrastructure, um, which results in leaking and uh, loss from from uh, evaporation and other types of, of loss. But uh, uh, every every 90 seconds, um, a, a child dies from water-related disease. This so, is jaw-dropping. Yeah, so, some pretty crazy numbers. And, and just to frame the investment case, uh, demand for water is expected to grow by 40% um, in the next decade. And and that growth is is largely um, due to industrial use and agricultural use. Um, human consumption is only really a small, small portion of, of water consumption. Puts things in a different perspective. Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, different ways to kind of take advantage of this opportunity. Um, really, water kind of cuts across everything. It's such a important use in industry, obviously, for consumption and sustaining life. Um, it's water really plays in so many different areas. And so we found opportunities in public markets, private markets, but it also extends into um, agriculture and thinking about mm-hmm. how unappreciated um, the importance of water is in our life and how it's probably not adequately priced or appropriately priced mm. relative to its importance mm-hmm. in, uh, in all the facets that I just mentioned. Um, just to give some context and some of the some examples of, of different ways we've gone about, uh, deploying capital within the water space. Within private equity, there was a, a company that we identified that um, is headquartered in a pretty water-stressed state in, um, in southwest of the United States, and they have developed a technology that um, basically draws water vapor out of the air that's mm. consumable for humans. And so um, this is an opportunity that, that we don't necessarily see tremendous application in, in developed markets, but it's really thinking of areas that are water stressed in sub-Saharan Africa, or um, you think of what happened in Puerto Rico a while back with the hurricanes mm-hmm. and how that kind of wa- wiped out just general water infrastructure. And so these are kind of modular panels that, that you can really kind of drop into, into certain places that have gone through um, some kind of natural disaster, and you can actually have consumable water basically immediately available for the population. That's fantastic. And the other the other really interesting thing is these aren't reliant on the grid. So you can you can really drop these in anywhere where energy doesn't have to be present. So it actually um, has solar panels on it to draw power to kind of create that opportunity to draw uh, water vapor out of the air that is consumable. So a really interesting opportunity. Wow. Um, that we identified early, and it's been a great, great company for us. And the the really cool thing um, that we see coming out of this is is um, as this company has kind of matured and, and grown, uh, it's it's kind of gone on to uh, future financing rounds. And and in the most recent round, we've seen really predominant endowment foundation clients taking a step mm. into this space. And and this is where you know, frankly, I think Arnership Cena has always been that forward-looking firm, and this is a perfect example of our firm identifying a great opportunity that's being recognized by the overall market with yeah. 
capital that's ready to back it and and, and really kind of take it to where it really could be. That's too appealing to miss yeah. um, and unique in terms of the technology and opportunities and infrastructure. And wow. Yeah. Another example, uh, again, private equity, but this is more from an agricultural standpoint, is we've looked at opportunities around uh, agriculture in water stress states where clients can invest in in really kind of compelling um, opportunities where there may be a water-rich farm that's on the edge of a very rapidly uh, growing uh, metropolitan area that hasn't necessarily thought through um, some of the water challenges mm-hmm. that they're going to face in the future. And so it's kind of getting in the path of that growth and having um, an asset that, again, isn't recognized by the market um, that we think will be um, really compelling from a valuation standpoint and a return standpoint going forward. But in the meantime, um, while these populations are growing and kind of figuring out what they're going to do for those water needs, you have an agricultural farm that's producing um, some kind of crop that's you know desired by the marketplace and, and clients can generate you know, a, a pretty interesting yield off of that, off of that agriculture. And so you get the, the income coming from that in real time. You have the, uh, the appreciation of agriculture in general as an asset class. And then you kind of have this um, asymmetric opportunity on the mm. upside if and when, um, you know, the marketplace really determines the true value of that water that that asset holds. Yeah, Brian, if, if I may, I'd like to jump in here because this, this, this purchasing of farms is a really interesting um, opportunity that I, I think is very exciting. A lot of the water rights were assigned based on, um, you know, legislation from the 20s or 30s, and, and um, some of them are even use it or lose it type, right. uh, wow. type right. rights. And so these farmers have absolutely no incentive to be more efficient with their water. And mm-hmm. so um, oftentimes we're finding that there are markets like the alfalfa markets that are fairly saturated. I, we don't need more alfalfa in the United States, but are very uh, water-intensive crops that have somewhat of a low yield. So um, what this uh, group does is they go in and they buy up those farms and they, uh, they repurpose for something more of a permanent crop like almonds. Um, and then they, they fallow the land sometimes and, and um, use that water for higher, higher use. Yeah. Wow. So these are really creative ways of taking advantage of these opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, farmers, you know, we shouldn't think of them as um, unsophisticated investors or not mm-hmm. recognizing mm-hmm. the value of the assets that they own. And so, you know, they're going to lean towards what's in their most economic um best interest. And so to Mitch's point, alfalfa was a a crop that was grown tremendously, uh, particularly in in California, that a lot of that was shipped over to China, which has its own kind of water stressed Mm -hmm. um, aspects of it. It it, it needs to solve long term. And again, this is this is another area of why we think water is such a compelling asset class. This is this isn't just a a U.S. problem. This is a global problem that Mm -hmm. um, every country is going to need to solve for. Um, and then to Mitch's point where, where um, water hasn't necessarily been used for its highest and best purpose. Again, it's been more driven by economic interest. But uh, new technology is, has kind of delivered ways to be very efficient with the use of water as it, as it pertains to growing crops. So instead of thinking of, a, of an alfalfa field, which was basically flooded mm-hmm. um, to, to provide the water needs for that crop, Today, there's drip irrigation systems that are just so focused on ex- delivering the exact amount of water that a crop needs and, and really not wasting anything mm-hmm. above and beyond that. That um, 
are ways to play, not only from an ag standpoint, but also there's public companies that are developing these technologies and these, these systems that um, we can take advantage of from a public market standpoint. Yeah, and just, just to bring the conversation back full circle, we said at the beginning that um, only 2.5% of water in the world is fresh water, and, and I think this, this poses an opportunity because uh, desalin- desalination is something that is discussed in depth and, frankly, today is just not at the place where it makes sense from an economic mm-hmm. standpoint. I think Australia had a big program where they spent tens of billions of dollars on a ton of desalination plants, and they've They've opened a handful of them and have closed over half of them already. And so uh, I think this is a big opportunity where research and, and uh, private capital can go into creating a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it's just potential. There's, uh, it doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to, just to kind of dovetail on that a little bit, the power requirement it takes to turn salt water. So often these desalination plants that Mitch is referring to sit right on the coast and um, the power it takes to turn that into consumable water is very intensive. And so that's exactly why it's not very, it's pretty cost prohibitive to not only develop these, but but just maintain them. And then you have to deal with kind of the, the byproduct of desalination, which is this really salty brine. And what do you do with that? Um, creates its own own challenges. So one other thing that, that we'll touch on um, as it pertains to water, and this is um, around kind of infrastructure in particular and, and really focusing on getting the most that we can. I, I can remember a number of years ago that we were uh, evaluating a long-only uh, water manager, and we got the opportunity to actually tour um, um, a, a wastewater district in, or- in Orange County, so Southern California, where basically they take um, wastewater from you know, municipalities, from residential consumers, and they actually turn that into drinkable water. Oh, my goodness. So shower oh water, goodness. sewage, <laughs> sinks, all of that. It's, it, oh. it sounds gross. gross. <laughs> it's fair. Uh, but uh, at this plant, it's amazing the amount of infrastructure and technology and design that went into really taking what is gross into something that is, that is drinkable. Yeah. In fact, at the end of the plant, at the end of the tour, they have um, water faucets flowing with water oh, that wow. is consumable. And <gasps> I took a drink and it tastes like water. I mean, their, their oh, slogan is, brave. their <laughs> yeah. slogan is, it looks like water because it is water or something to, to that extent. But, but it's just amazing that, that, that technology has taken us to a place where on one site you can really take, um, you know, waste from human consumption and turn it into something that, that we all need. Um, so just another kind of example of how to take advantage of this opportunity through public markets as well. Yeah, and just just to maybe close with one one last uh, one last figure, it's, it's estimated that there's going to be $7.5 trillion that needs to be spent to maintain the status quo by 2030. Um, currently, about $500 billion is spent on water, and so that's a 15 times increase investment. And so... That provides a lot of opportunity for companies who are leaders in this space. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's fantastic. We're deploying that private capital for actual solutions and Mm -hmm. generating return out of it. Definitely. So we've talked about water and a little bit about how agriculture um, plays into that. But can you talk a little bit about food and, and what's happening in the food space? Definitely. So food, very important. The The world population 
could be pushing 10 billion by 2050, and and that's a lot of hungry mouths. So uh, agricultural productivity will need to increase. It's estimated by about 60 percent um, in order to meet meet this need given given current land and resources. Um, oh my goodness! Something else um, as as we look at that growth is obviously greenhouse gas emissions. Um, about 25 to 35 percent of greenhouse gas emissions come from farming. Um, could be totally butchering those numbers, but I thought I did did see that. Uh, and and these can be improved with more efficient crop management practices. Mm-hmm. Brian, do you want to just speak about how we're uh, accessing food and agriculture? Yeah, again, it's it's largely a play on agriculture in and of itself, but it's not necessarily just owning the farmland. It's thinking through the entire supply chain of food. Mm-hmm. So. Um, a lot of the opportunities that we see, and this this particularly comes mainly through private equity, is you know companies that not only own the farmland itself, but have thought through how they can add value uh, throughout the supply chain. So that that comes in the form of packaging, and then um, kind of aggregating smaller um, pieces of farmland, or having cooperative uh, communities kind of coming together and and building some scale to their distribution system that you know, allows them to kind of ring out extra value and incremental return for, for investors. Um, the other thing that I would point to is the importance of um, avoiding waste within food. So mm. you think about um, how food is not only transported and some of the packaging has changed over the years on, on um, how fruits and vegetables are, are delivered or even eggs are delivered to clients or to, to, to consumers. Um, just those small incremental things that we can do to, it's really about kind of eliminating waste within the system. And, and also, I mean, this dovetails into other themes in terms of kind of um, efficiency, but it's thinking about the packaging and, and whether plastics is the right choice or are there new technologies or, or that, that people can consider in terms of um, avoiding wasteful plastics mm-hmm. as a form of packaging. Definitely. Um, one thing I would add, I'm, I'm a big seafood fan myself, but I think uh, uh, developing a, a more sustainable and efficient seafood mm-hmm. um, offering w- is huge. Fish consumption has about 11% of the carbon footprint per calorie as beef, and I'm also a, I'm also a big beef fan. But uh, I, I do see see yeah. the merits in in shifting diets towards a fish-heavy diet. Yeah. So. Um once we solve the food and water problem, we're well on our way to solving the world's problems. <laughs> but the next thing that we have to look at is energy. So we've got food, agriculture, water, um, but the next one of our themes is resource efficiency. So you guys want to talk about resource efficiency, what the opportunities are, why we have chosen that and see that as um, one of our critical um, impact themes. Yeah, and, and just to continue with the theme, I'll, I'll uh, frame frame the situation and then hand it over to Brian for opportunities. But uh, current CO2 levels are our highest on record. I don't think this should be a surprise to anyone, but um, it's it's a, a pretty um, appalling chart to look at. Um, we've had about a 20, per, or 20 times increase in extreme temperature events since just 1950. Um, our energy infrastructure, including the electrical grid, is, is terribly outdated, which mm-hmm. creates inefficiencies and leads to wasted energy. And uh, maybe I'll tee Brian up here, but uh, why we call it resource efficiency, I, I think a lot of other people would just go directly to renewable energy. But mm-hmm. uh, we see sort of two opportunities, two sides of the equation. We see growing sustainable energy production, so um, 
that would be the, the traditional thought of renewable energy, but also decreasing wasted energy mm -hmm. and funding mm -hmm. companies that are looking to create um, more efficient ways to use our current energy supply. So um, I'll, I'll turn it over to Brian now. Yeah, that's a great way to tee it up, Mitch. So there's there's the supply side, which historically has come from, you know, um, dirtier forms of inputs. So thinking of coal and gas and oil um, to more abundant, free, essentially free forms of inputs in, in terms of generating power through the sun and through wind. The real challenge is while we definitely see alternative energy taking a, a much more increased role in terms of the energy mix both here in the United States as well as globally, um, forms of alternative energy um, aren't stable. So the wind generally blows at night when um, uh, energy, uses, energy use needs aren't what they are mm -hmm. during peak kind of daytime periods right. where the sun obviously shines during the day and not mm -hmm. at night. But so these are nice systems that have some complementary um, um, benefits to one another, but you know, we have a demand that is pretty static. And, mm -hmm. and if, if either wind or solar or geothermal or whatever form of alternative energy you're looking at isn't producing the power needed by the grid, what are some other ways to kind of complement that mix? Mm -hmm. And so that, that potentially could come in kind of more traditional, hopefully more cleaner forms of fuel, thinking of kind of natural gas and and different ways to kind of have immediacy on, on supplying power to the grid. Um, that's a really important component. Um, as it relates to how we go about thinking about deploying capital, um, it's easy to think of owning solar companies or wind companies as a, a really nice, convenient way to do that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, the return pattern on those companies have been very volatile mm. over time. Depending on government subsidies, the price of oil in general, right. um, it can it can provide for a pretty volatile return mix. And we certainly think there's times in the cycle that it'd be interesting to own these companies, and, and they definitely will present themselves in client portfolios. That's really not how it manifests itself in our in our portfolios for the most part. And Rich, uh, Mitch already kind of pointed to it, and it's really it's really focused on the efficiency side of things. Um, that is a, a really interesting way that, that we can deploy capital in both public and private markets. Um, a simple way to think about this is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when we first started doing our work around impact, um, semi-trucks, which, you know, um, move a, good, a, a healthy amount of goods across our country, um, there wasn't much thought in terms of the amount of power required mm. to have those trucks move around. And as, as energy prices increased, you saw more of a focus on kind of how can we get more out of these semi-trucks moving, moving goods around the country. And one simple solution, it's not super exotic or anything like that, was putting um, some kind of um, basically kind of plastic uh, wind guides at the bottom of the truck that kind of reduced their drag as oh. they were driving down the road. And wow. so it's, it's, it's small things like that. And now today, you basically see every single semi with these mm -hmm. plastic flaps kind of hanging underneath their trailers. And that's just to reduce wind drag, and it just improves the efficiency of that vehicle. It's not monumental, but even small things well, like that, that can have a meaningful a impact. That a huge difference yeah. across the span of how many trucks are traveling daily. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one, one thing I would say is is um, everybody's favorite company, Google. I'm, I'm sure uh, most people use, use their iPhone, which is, again, um, the search engine is powered by Google, uh, thanks to the New Deal. But... Google is running 100% on renewable energy. And I, I really think this is a trend that we'll see a lot of big corporations um, 
uh, uh, trending to in the future as um, it show it's just really a way for for companies to connect with their customer base and and, and show them that that they care about um, the footprint they have on the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you know, thinking of um, just consumers and and drivers um, historically, you know, EVs haven't been that big of a mix um, in terms of um, opportunities for consumers to drive more fuel efficient vehicles and. You're definitely seeing, I mean, obviously Tesla's the, the big kind of first mover in that space, but you're seeing um, kind of traditional um, automotive companies definitely taking much further of a look into, into providing Volkswagen. solutions for consumers to drive electronic vehicles. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking back to my comment on um, the intermittency of alternative energy, you know, as battery technology um, improves, that could be a solution to kind of capturing a lot of power when alternative energy sources are abundant, when it's really sunny mm. or when it's really windy. Um, we don't really have a, a, a system right now to capture that excess supply onto the market. Um, looking down the road 5, 10, 15 years, hopefully we're, we'll see more innovation and more uh, solutions to kind of capture that that energy when it's more abundant through uh, very clean sources of, of energy. Yeah, and, and one more thing I would add is EVs have been around for a while, but um, they they are really becoming more cost competitive now as as the en- energy generation is, is becoming cheaper. But especially lithium ion batteries are are really coming down in price. They're about a quarter of what they were last year in terms of um, cost. Oh. And you know, I think uh, I think being more affordable it will be a catalyst for growth. But uh, mm-hmm. I would also point towards autonomous uh, vehicles. I get laughed out of the room every time mm-hmm. I talk about this. I think. <laughs> All my family and friends are, are sick of hearing me talk about it, but I, every company who's doing doing research um, and, and development in autonomous uh, driving is is planning to launch those um, with um, e, uh, EV cars mm-hmm. instead of um, traditional combustion uh, uh, engine cars, and, and I think that could be as that. Uh, gains traction, that will be a catalyst for a lot more um, conversion from traditional combustion engine to um, the the EV setup. Right. They're coming whether we like them or not. Uh, Well, this is an area where I think people are really aware of the need for solutions. So that is exciting to hear about some of these solutions that are coming and that we have the opportunity to bring to our investors. So the last impact theme that we want to talk about today is life sciences and healthcare. So tell us about that theme and how we came up with it and what opportunities we're seeing in life sciences. Yeah, this is probably one of the more more obvious ones that I, I, I think you would see um, a lot of interest in. And it's really just about <clears throat> uh, global population really growing across the board. You look, you look at developed markets, whether it's Japan, Europe, and even the United States to some point. Um, it's really about aging demographics, but also about radical innovation that's happening within these spaces. And so to me, this is a, a kind of a no-brainer theme that we've had implemented in client portfolios for you know, really 15 years and beyond um, in both public and private. But Mitch, why don't you um, walk us through some of the kind of opportunities and, and different things to be thinking about as you're deploying capital? Yeah, definitely. So the uh, the what, what we call the innovation pipeline is is really at an all time mm-hmm. high. Uh, healthcare R and D spending is is uh, again at an all time record. I I think it's around a hundred. It was around one hundred seventy five two hundred billion in 
in 2018, and there really hasn't ever been a more innovative time in the life sciences sector. Um, FDA approvals have more than tripled since the start of the century, and so there's uh, there's quite a bit in, in the hopper for development. And, and one of the things I, I would say there is, is uh, a lot of these are for rare and orphan diseases, mm-hmm. which um, are obviously incredibly sad stories. But from the business perspective, there is a little bit more of a pricing power case there. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they tend to be um, high ROI investments for, uh, for these companies. Um, another area to discuss is the Human Genome Project. So Mm -hmm. for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with this, it it was an attempt to to map the human genome, which in in layman's terms is is uh, showing the sequence of of DNA patterns for each person. So this was um, a late 90s, early 2000s um, initiated project that uh, first First one completed costed somewhere between 100 million and 2.7 billion dollars to map the first genome, depending on what costs you factor in and what you don't. And and a human has roughly 20,000 genes, and there's three billion different pairings. So this is truly a a complex um, uh, a, a complex project. But today. Um, it, it costs about $1,000 for a person to go in and, and have their uh, DNA sequenced. And there are just basically an unlimited amount of opportunities um, that this opens for, for healthcare and, and allows for um, future advancements and continued uh, development in uh, direct gene therapy, um, where a lot of the research is focused. Yeah, and, and just to kind of get a little bit more into the implementation, um, I think of recent conversations that we've had with um, an approved manager that we recently brought through um, our process, and um, one of the one of the conversations that we had with that manager was was valuations. Valuations, uh, just from the from a very high level perspective, look pretty rich within the healthcare sector and certainly within kind of the life sciences biotech area. And he made a really interesting comment was, and and this is why we think it's so important to not only work with an active manager, but really a specialist manager within the space who can, you know, really have the kind of conversations with the executive teams of these companies and really understand how viable these companies are over the long term. But he made a really interesting point uh, when we were talking about valuations and he talked about you know, a, a space, a pretty narrow space where perhaps three or four companies are all kind of trying to um, position themselves to um, really own that space. And mm. the market today is ascribing basically a full market value to each one of those, basically saying all three of those companies could own the market when in reality it's probably going to be one or two of them mm. who survive. And so, um, you know, we, we, th- we think it's really important for investors to, to really work with managers who are able to identify mm-hmm. that next generation of winners and avoiding those companies who may have a really nice sales pitch, but there is no substance behind the actual mm-hmm. um, story that they're telling to the marketplace that, frankly, passive investors are buying into. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Domain expertise is huge. I think life sciences is the area more than any other area of the market where you really need someone who understands, um, in this case, the science behind these companies and is able to distinguish um, uh, the, the very lofty expectations or fraudulent, in the case of, of Theranos, versus um, the, 
the companies that really have the science figured out mm-hmm. and and really have the ability to uh, develop the drug that is going to get that FDA approval and going to turn a a small group of scientists into a company that develops the next big drug that solves whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's interesting just thinking from kind of a traditional long only perspective. We've seen a lot of managers within the small cap growth space really kind of just give up on that space mm-hmm. because they just don't understand that the the outcomes tend to be fairly binary. And so what you're left with is kind of these specialist investors that, that we tend to lean into and just the passive market that's just blindly investing in these companies across the board, whether it's through you know a general index fund or an ETF that's perhaps targeted to this space. But again, just accepting the marketplace that they're coming up with the right valuations for these companies when they could just be way off base. And so I think generally we've seen the market um, kind of return variations across companies really kind of condensed to some extent. Within biotech, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. So um, companies can be trading up 20, 30% one day and down you know, a similar amount the next day. But the reality is there's a ton of opportunity for investors who really know this space and, and can lean into those companies that are going to be kind of those next generation winners and have really asymmetric outcomes for mm-hmm. from a return perspective. And this applies both to public markets and private markets. And, and um, you definitely would see this exposure um, being a pretty healthy overweight in our client portfolios. And, and also, you, you really need to, when you're evaluating the different investors in, in this landscape, um, in life sciences, you need to, there's another wrinkle you need to look at, and that's that's the ethical um, mm-hmm. makeup of the that's investor. That's a great point. Right. Because uh, you, you, there's companies that you can invest in that are going to make a lot of money for investors, but could perpetuate some of, uh, some, of some right. society's worst problems. And so um, not only do you need to... Um, get an idea for how well they understand the science, uh, how well they understand business and, and more broadly investing, but really their ethical and moral uh, background mm-hmm. and, and if they're investing for the right reasons. And, and that's a good way to distinguish um, the good from the great um, for mm-hmm. what we're looking for that's in this a great, area. That's a great point, right. Rich. Yeah, not an easy thing to navigate. Um, well, this has been really interesting with some great stories the, the whole idea of impact investing carries with it some great stories. And the fact that we are finding these exciting solutions in all of these themes from water, food, agriculture, resource efficiency, life sciences. Um, I hope all of our clients and investors are as excited as I am to hear about them. Before we wrap up, do you guys have anything that you want to add? No, this was great. This was, um, we've, we've worked really hard the last nine to 12 months on on our research in this space and it's finally coming together and i'm, yep. I'm really excited like you said about about the, the end portfolios we're building definitely um well i want to say a huge thank you to brian and mitch for joining us today i want to encourage everybody to go back and listen to both the first and second parts of our impact investing podcast series this was the last podcast in that three-part series but i am sure we'll continue the conversation because there's lots more to talk about um, for more information, you can always visit us online at arnrichmessina.com. We have a white paper called Impact Investing, Why, What, How, that also has an ex- executive summary um, and a short video about impact investing. So again, thank you, Brian and Mitch, and thank you all for joining us today. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to Arnrich Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information.